Ever had to parse through an absolutely awful contract? How about a 60-page MSA from one of those big company procurement departments? One of the promises of AI is that the happy robots will start taking away the drudgery of tasks like parsing our four-page IP transfer clause. In this episode, I sit down with Lars Muller, Chief Science Officer at Legal Sifter. Spoiler alert, they already have AIs to do this. As a bonus, Lars lays down one of the best machine learning analogies that I've heard. Hey, Lars, man, thanks for joining us. It's uh, really cool to have you on. Hey, Ledge, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Can you give, you know, two, three-minute background story of yourself and your work? Uh, I've read it, and, you know, you have covered a lot of ground. This is going to be interesting. Yeah, so my name, uh, I'm Lars Mahler. I'm the Chief Science Officer at Legal Sifter. I'm actually a co-founder as well, so I started Legal Sifter about just over six years ago uh, while I was finishing out my grad program at Carnegie Mellon University. So at Legal Sifter, I oversee all of our AI and data science activities, and that includes some platform development as well as um, a team of lawyers and data scientists who builds our models. Yeah, and I know you've been, you know, so you're co-founder and, and data scientist and, you know, sort of even talked about like off mic, you talked about, you know, so you wear the sales hat. I mean, just, just put this together for us. AI is so hype cycle and yet, you know, so active and, and prevalent, but, you know, break it down a little bit. Tell me about the market. Sure. Yeah. So um, you're right. AI is prevalent. It's kind of in the hype cycle. Um, you know, it's actually a really fun space to be in um, because there is that sort of hype and excitement. And to some extent, that's, it's a little bit overblown. Um, people are thinking about how are these, you know, super intelligent machines. You know, we're not there yet. Um, the reality is really a lot of these AI applications are at the, the, the core of their productivity tools, um, which sometimes doesn't sound sexy, but they're actually really sexy productivity tools. Um, so it's fun. It's, you know, during a day to day, sometimes I've got my sales hat on. I'm meeting with, you know, clients, potential clients, and then I might shift gears and uh, meet with my data scientists and get deep into the numbers. Yeah, talk about what the tool does, because I, I was not familiar until we connected with Legal Sifter, but I mean, I just, I read the homepage, and I'm like, oh, I so need this. You know, just, just talk through that, that value prop just a little bit, and then we can get into like, okay, how do you actually make that happen? Sure, yeah. So Legal Sifter is an application where if you get a, if you are negotiating a contract and you've received the contract from the other party, it's on their paper, you've never seen this before, it's 60 pages long, it's a real pain in the butt to read, you can upload it into Legal Sifter. We're going to automatically scan and analyze all the terms and conditions. We're going to let you know which terms and conditions we've found, so things that you care about. We're going to let you know which terms and conditions are missing. Um, so these are also things where you've specified in the application, hey, let me know if this is missing because I really care about it. Um, and then thirdly, when we find the terms and conditions that you care about, we're going to inject help text that has guidance either from your own lawyer, your in-house counsel, or our network of experts. Okay. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Right? So that actually gets to you know, the AIs that I, I didn't even know existed. And I talked to, to a lot of people. So 
just talk about this this technology because that that almost sounds like bleeding edge impossible to me. <laughs> it is. It's fun. It's cutting edge. Not impossible, but it is bleeding edge. Um, you you want to know how it works, or? Yeah, I absolutely want to know how it works. I what what even goes into that? I mean, we have a lot of people that they will probably know a lot of the terminology, and I think we also have audience members who are. It's like, I have got to get into this. I want to learn where do I even start, you know? So walk us through, I guess there's, there's probably a bunch of NLP in there. There's probably a bunch of uh, certainly learning of some sort, you know, just to what is the, what's the architecture and, and layout like of such a thing? So I think about it in three main chunks. The first layer is uh, the chunk that's taking a file from a, a user, whether it be a PDF a Word document, a JPEG, whatever, it's taking that and converting it into text. Um, so that there's different things that we have going on there, but there's OCR if it's a PDF or image file. If it's a Word document, there's different things that we do to kind of um, exploit the structure of that document. So the first layer is really all about translating input document into a standardized text file. The second high-level process is really the domain of natural language processing, or NLP. So here you're taking that long string of characters in the text file and turning them into chunks of text that have meaning and attributes. So the things we might do would be, first of all, chopping it up into sentences, then chopping the sentences up into tokens or words. And then for each of those tokens, you're, you're trying to figure out um, you know, what part of speech is this token? Is it a noun, a verb, adjective, et cetera? Um, so you're doing a lot of things at that NLP layer to basically take what was previously just a raw set of characters, break it into meaningful units, and then sort of add metadata to, to each of those chunks of text. And then the third and final layer is once you've gotten, you know, all of this text and you've, you've chunked it out in a nice way, then you're in the world of machine learning. So now you're taking all those words, um, doing what's called feature extraction or feature engineering, and taking all that information and basically uh, crunching it down into numbers. And that, that black box that you get at the end, that is the AI algorithm. I mean, many, many moons ago, you know, I would, I would have to write these gigantic Perl scripts that would suck up near binary feed data and try to turn it into, you know, some kind of a, a structured data source, ETL, I guess, if, if you will. And, and that sounds very familiar to me on the top. In fact, a lot of folks that I've talked to, you know, they're just sort of like, hey, you know, when you're getting started with this, like 80% of the work is, is just figuring out, like, how do I take this data and, and tokenize it and make it useful? And then there's the, the part where you're, you're really, I guess you're training, right, algorithms. You need to have a great deal of input. So many, many, many contracts and business rules and feedback, I guess. Is, is that true? Is that how the mechanism works? That's exactly right. Yeah. So what you're talking about, that sort of data munging or data wrangling, that is a huge part of data science in general, but especially with NLP. Anytime you're dealing with text, it's messy. There are lots of things you have to do. And you can think of it as the world's, it's a very complicated type of ETL. And then to your second point, yeah, once you get to the world of machine learning, you know, you, you've taken this document, which was a string of characters, 
now you, you've converted it into chunks. And you can think of each of those chunks as like a row in a spreadsheet. Um, and the columns in the spreadsheet would be what we call features. And so if you're training an algorithm, you could have 100 features, 1,000 features, 100,000 features. It's the world's biggest spreadsheet that nobody wants to look at. <laughs> and you're going to feed that into an algorithm. And then it's going to take all of that and crunch it down to meaningful numbers. So it's really about essentially taking each token and applying a huge number of tags to it. It's not unlike what would be your, your tag cloud on a much more advanced scale. Is, is that a good That's analogy? a great, that's a great way to think about it. Yeah. And so from, from that point there, and by the way, this is super interesting to me because no one's actually broken it down that way. So I can tell you do sales because you must. I, I love this stuff. So yeah. Keep yeah, absolutely. And I don't think anybody, you know, really sort of understands that it's far less frightening <laughs> and sort of abstract when you when you break it down that way. And it really comes down to, you know, um, you start to really appreciate the compute power and the contribution that that makes because we're just able to do things that we were doing anyway, but at massive scale and with with millions of dimensions instead of, you know, four or five or six or, you know, the worst spreadsheet you ever worked on went up to row, you know, or column AB, right? Right. And, and this, this time you're talking about tons and tons and tons of those um, metaphorical columns. So how does, how does meaning and, and learning result then from the algorithm? What's on the other side after you run algorithms against all that? What happens is you, um, with machine learning, let's say you've got this long, you know, this really nasty spreadsheet. It's a million rows long or, you know, long and it's, let's say a million columns wide. It's just <laughs> super nasty. You've now crunched it into numbers or, or coefficients. Um, and then on the other side, when you have that spreadsheet, let's say there's a million uh, columns, there's one additional column, your, your one millionth and one column that has your labels of what it's trying to learn. So for us, what we're trying to learn is, hey, is this a governing law clause or not? Um, for a credit card company, that, that very final column might be, was this transaction fraudulent or not? Um, if you're doing, if you're, you're detecting uh, whether an image is cancerous or not, that last thing might be, is this image cancerous or not? So that final column is on the other side of the algorithm. And what the algorithm is trying to do is figure out, when I take all these million columns and run them through the black box, how can I set the coefficients so that they do a good job of predicting that final column? And so it's really going to be uh, uh, that final column is not only the, the label, but is also a probability then? Um, it can be. It depends on, on the type of algorithm you're using, but usually it's a label. If, if you're talking about classification, usually it's a label, you know, dog versus cat, red versus yellow. Um, so that's that's for many classification problems, that's what's on in that column. And what does it do if it's not sure? Well, usually when you've got that labeled column, usually either a human has made, has made a labeling decision, right? So the human said, this is a dog or this is a cat. Um, or you have that data from some other source where you're relatively confident that it's right. Uh, but, but to be honest, there's a lot of times when the labels are wrong, like the data is not always clean. 
So that's why a lot of times you have to have a lot of data so that when you have noise or dirty labels, um, the good ones outweigh the bad. Oh, that's really interesting. So prior to our hidden record here, you were talking about the, the market for AI developing around uh, this distinction of, of narrow AI, and I've read about that. But I, I would love to get your comments on that. And then I guess the holy grail, right, that everybody's waiting for is this general AI. And this seems to be a really tactical way to, to view the market and, and the accessibility and usefulness of AI at this point. Yeah, so you can think of AI in sort of two buckets. One is, um, well, let's start with general AI. When most people think of AI, or at least five years ago, when most people thought of AI, you would think of like HAL from uh, Space Odyssey or, you know, some kind of superhuman robot with superhuman intelligence. Um, that is what people are working towards, whether we should or shouldn't be working towards that. That's kind of TBD. We don't know if it'll be friendly or unfriendly, but, you know, there's, that's, that's general AI. So it's, it's AI that can do many different things um, and, and be as intelligent as a human or maybe even more intelligent. So super, super intelligent AI is, is beyond human. So that's still many years in the future. Um, I don't know if it's 20 years or 50 years or 100 years. It kind of depends on um, breakthroughs in different fields. What you see today in the market is exclusively what we call narrow AI. And this is where you have um, artificial intelligence techniques being used to solve a very specific task or problem. So for us, the task that we are solving with Legal Sifter is, given a contract, can we understand what each of the sentences in the contract is saying? And we're, we're good at that. We're very good at that. We're getting even better every week. Um, but we're never going to be able to take that AI and have it make a cup of coffee or drive a car or do anything else. So it's kind of like a savant. It does one thing really, really well, but it can't do anything else. Similarly, Uber, you know, they're building a self-driving car, but their self-driving car will not be able to understand legal contracts. We can all hope not. We, right. <laughs> so, so what you're seeing in the market today um, is, and there's really a gold rush going on, is many, many different narrow AI applications. And they're each focused on problems that people have. Um, and they're productivity tools, but they're productivity tools kind of at a higher level than what we've seen in the past. So they're productivity tools that help um, predict things that humans might have a hard time predicting, make judgments that might take people time, uh, comb through text and quickly find things that might take lawyers weeks or years to find. Um, so in a way, they're just productivity tools, but in a way, they're really super duper powerful productivity tools. Of course, you get me thinking there that, well, I really want my lawyer to buy this. So this is a good stickiness. $600 an hour, I would really like to reduce that, that time burden. Um, I'm well, curious. By the way, a lot of our clients are lawyers, and they're, they're <laughs> using this for that purpose. So. Good. God bless them. Please, you should, you should put a directory on your site of you know, <laughs> lawyers who use us. Um, so I'm curious 
when you when you look at the the narrow way I you described as a gold rush and you know the the sort of after the fact economic analysis of any gold rush is that the, the only people who got rich were the ones selling shovels. So you know how do how do you guys think about that? You know I've thought about that several, many times actually. Um, so Google and AWS, Microsoft are definitely selling shovels. So if you're using any of their uh, cloud platforms, they have machine learning tools. They've got annotation tools, which is very important in the world of, of machine learning. So they've got, they are definitely selling those shovels. There's other companies out there that are also similarly trying to um, help automate the process of building ML or AI applications. Um, hard to know which ones are going to work and, and which ones are not going to work. But I also think there's, within different industries, it's also, I don't know. I, I, think, I think, you know, not every AI company will succeed, but I think a large number of them will su succeed because the problems that they're solving are real problems. And this is a new technology that, that uh, we had the algorithms for it before, but we didn't have the compute power before. So this is the first time when we're able to actually help lawyers read faster or think better or write more clearly. So at what point, because uh, that, that duality kind of switches over time, right? It's almost like your, your new version of client server. At what point does the, the compute engine power outrun our thinking of, of great algorithms? I know we have AI sort of coming up with AIs now. Is, is that the necessary next step and then quantum or, you know, what, what's that flip-flop look like in this space? To be honest, I don't know. That's a great question. Um, uh, I think AI creating AI is very interesting. I think it's definitely within the realm of possibility. Um, so generative AI, you know, AI that's creating things like artwork or music or things like that. To me, that is really super interesting. Um, that's still in the uh, more sort of R&D stage right now, but it's definitely within the realm of possibility. I don't have a good sense of when that might, when we might see AI creating AI. Um, you, you bring up a good point, though, about compute power. You know, we, uh, the most intensive number crunching that we have right now is usually around deep learning. And right now, Google and AWS have solutions that are really, really powerful and that can help you crunch those numbers really quickly. Um, so it may be that we are, that our compute power is going to be sort of more than what our algorithms need within the next year or two. That's fascinating. We really, this is a, we live in an interesting time, you know, where, where one hopes that it doesn't become general, uh, Terminator style, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, the ability to, to really augment the, the human condition, you know, I mean, it just opens up all kinds of. Uh, opportunities. I mean, healthcare and, and neuroscience and, you know, just on and on and on. So many such fascinating conversations. And I, I always think of it as, you know, that the each of the narrow applications is sort of out there on your scatter chart. And as that bubble for each one gets bigger and bigger and bigger, obviously they start to overlap and, and eventually, you know, the whole chart is colored and, and that's really your, your uh, event horizon for, 
for general AI and, and the, the time frame. You're right; is is the biggest biggest question. If you're if you're reading the singularity, it's it's only uh, six seven years away. Based on <laughs> we'll see about that. I mean, I, to be honest, I think next ten years or so, what we're going to see is most routine cognitive tasks, the so things that people do again and again, but it requires some brain work. Um, but it's kind of like drudgery or tedious brain work. I think most of those you're going to see automated or accelerated with AI. So the AI is kind of your companion, your, your partner helping you do that faster. So in the legal space, what that means is lawyers are doing less grunt work and more thinking work. I think same probably in the medical space and probably every other space. Um, so for a while, it's going to be great. It's going to be everybody kind of focusing on the stuff they'd rather focus on. And then beyond 10 or 20 years, when general AI starts to become a thing, then it gets really unpredictable. Hopefully good and exciting though. <laughs> yeah, I just have it trade my stocks for me and just sit back. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. You know, get in a little, little cart like in Wally and just drink my smoothie. <laughs> um, tell us some, uh, you know, I'm always interested in, and the audience consistently loves this. You know, I, I think of the, um, you know, massive audacious uh, failures that you know really turn into those great learning opportunities from which you grow successes. I don't know if you have any any good stories that that come to mind of like, wow, you know, I really wish we had known X at the time. Man, you know, I'm racking my brain. There are many, many, I think, small things. Uh, I don't think I. I I'm kind of com coming em empty. It's not that we haven't had mistakes. We've had many, but they're all kind of tiny and just incremental. And we have, you have your narrow, kind of narrow learning opportunities and not general. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you know, everybody's got the great story on how they brought production down for every client, you know, on the DevOps side. And, um, you know, I, you know I, think I think for us, and this is a little bit kind of operational, but a lot of our learnings, um, we've had a few kind of breakthroughs algorithmically where we, we tried some different algorithms and, and learned, oh man, we can get a step increase by using this, this algorithm or this feature. Those were exciting. But a lot of our real gains have been from tweaking what we call annotation. And I don't know if you're familiar with annotation or not, but underneath every AI application, usually there's a team of humans having to label data. And that process is called annotation. And so we've really turned that into a factory. So that when we identify, hey, we want to build a new sifter or a new model, um, we've got a whole team and we can just build it, you know, really quickly with high quality in a, in a very repeatable way. So it reminds me of uh, that's kind of the promise of like a mechanical Turk, you know, uh, humans doing um, necessary tasks that require human brains, but as a almost like an API, um, any. Any thoughts on that? I mean, is that the kind of thing that, that that's, develops around the edges of every business then? That's exactly what we have. We have our own internal mechanical Turk. You know, we don't outsource it. Well, we've got to keep, keep the data inside, but we essentially have that going. And, um, and I think, you know, most large companies or serious AI companies either have their own internal team doing that or they're outsourcing the mechanical Turk or several other vendors. It's a fascinating thing that, you know, all of this bleeding edge technology comes down to, to brute force 
volume. <laughs> you got to feed the machine. Of humans. Yeah. And I think, you know, people misunderstand that sometimes. I know we get a lot of, you know, uh, inbound entrepreneurs who are like, I want to build AI to do X. And we've learned through, you know, sort of the trial and error of, of facilitation that, you know, so where's your training data going to come from? Because you don't yeah. have a data set large enough to even, um, you know, make any assumptions there. And yeah. I think that's the piece that nobody wants to talk about. That it's so on your on your front end, you've got the, you know, huge quasi ETL lift data ingestion. And then on the back, you know, you really need to have an amazing amount of, of this, uh, you know, uh, tagging classification or whatever the, you know, terms are. And uh, somewhere in there, I guess you get to actually write an algorithm. Maybe you lucky data scientists, you know, do that part while everybody else is still uh, feeding the machine. You know, that's, that, that is the fun part, the algorithms and feature engineering. But we got to be all over the place. You know, it's, we, we use data science in the annotation process, too. So we use it everywhere to kind of accelerate the, uh, the process. We're in the business of, you know, finding and vetting and certifying, you know, A plus, very super ninja unicorn engineers. And, you know, we've been doing that a long time and we have good processes around it. I, I always love to ask about uh, talent vetting and evaluation, you know, for every tech lead that I interview. And I'll even pivot the question a little bit to you. You know, is there, um, are there meaningfully different heuristics between hiring a data scientist and a, a software engineer? I think there are two differences. So to me, in general, for everybody, I want somebody who has years of real-world experience, um, somebody who understands best practices, maybe doesn't follow them dogmatically, but understands why they are the best practices and when to use and when to discard. Um, and then somebody who has great communication skills, who can understand the business context, kind of use that to influence the way they, they write code, but then also when they hit barriers or sort of decision points in the code, they can clearly communicate that back to other people so that others can make a decision of, yeah, we, we want to do it this way or we want to do it that way. So I think that applies to everybody. Um, oh, also, I want somebody who's, who's really good but also humble. Um, so that, that's for everybody. I think the only two things I'd add on for like an a AI engineer or data science person would be, first of all, a good data intuition. So a lot of times you'll have people that come out of a grad, grad program, they really understand the algorithms, they really understand the math, but they don't have a lot of real world experience like cleaning data, munging it, twisting it and pivoting it and knowing when it's wrong. Um, and there it's like my ideal person would not only have the AI background, but they'd have years of database and ETL experience so that they would know like when something smells, they can smell it. <laughs> so that'd be part one. And then similarly, somebody with a good machine learning intuition, because sometimes you'll get somebody and you're building a model and you can't hit the performance you want to do. And they just always resort to the most fun thing, which is either feature engineering or they're saying, hey, let's, let's throw some deep learning at it and do a deep learning, um, which is, you know, like, like the newest, flashiest thing. Um, so my most productive ML folks have been people who have a good intuition about, okay, well, what's the real problem here? And maybe we can solve it a different way. 
so yeah, I'd say data, data intuition and ML intuition. Yeah, I love that. Great, great insights. I could tell you that universally, every time I've probably asked this question a hundred times, and there's a quick gloss over experience and actual technical skill, and it's straight to communications, problem solving, and and intuition is a, is a new one, and that discernment to understand, you know, the the real context in in which the work matters. That's a that's a great insight. I love that. Well, Lars, really cool to have you on. Totally appreciate uh, your time, and uh, it's been uh, really instructive. Thanks a lot. This has been great. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io slash podcast to get in touch, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.